folks and welcome back it's been a hot minute so i thought we'd start with the creepypasta at the beginning of the week something happened in an irish border town that was kept out of the history books i'll start this account by admitting i was a member of the provisional irish republic republican army during the early 1970s I joined as a volunteer in the South Down Brigade in late 1971 and was active along the border up until my arrest and conviction in 1975. I make no apologies for my involvement in the armed struggle, although I am not proud of everything I did during that time. When I look back now, I do question whether all the bloodshed was worth it. Nevertheless, I am not here to confess any th- everything I did back in the day. Many of the incidents I was involved in are still technically open investigations, and I have no intention of incriminating myself after the fact. I'm an old man now, and in poor health. I can't go back to prison at my age, and I'm in no condition to go on the run. Ultimately, I've come to terms with most of what I did. It was a war after all. But there is this one incident that I cannot forget. An episode that haunts my nightmares to this very day. I've decided to tell my story now because I believe the victims should be remembered and because their families deserve to know the truth. I'm just sorry it's taking me so long to speak out. Well, I might as well start at the beginning. I grew up in Newry, a medium-sized town located in the southern part of County Down, just a few miles north of the British-imposed border in Ireland. Newry or Neri, was and remains a town with a substantial Catholic and nationalist majority. Nevertheless, we lived within a Protestant and Unionist-dominated statelet and were treated like second-class citizens, discriminated against in employment and in housing, and kept in our place by the RUC and B-specials. Our family was a poor one. Unemployment was rife in Newer back then, and my father, a plasterer by trade, was often out of work. My mother would occasionally hold down cleaning jobs to supplement our meager family income. But otherwise, we were dependent on the dole, a plentiful small state benefits paid out to us by the Unionist government. I grew up with four younger siblings, two brothers and two sisters. I know how tough it was for my parents to pay the rent and keep food on the table. They did their best, but often we would have to go without. I left school at 15 and soon realized I'd have little prospect of finding steady employment. I managed to get an odd laboring job working alongside my father on building sites. But when work was slow, and it usually was, I would be standing in the dole queue alongside most of my friends and contemporaries. Even so, I wasn't political at that age. I was more interested in drinking with my mates, listening to rock and roll, and chasing girls. But things changed for me during the violent summer of 1969. Our people had been marching for civil rights for almost two years by this point. Our protests were peaceful, but the RUC and Protestant extremists tried to beat us off the streets. The situation came to head in August of 69, when the police attempted to invade the Borgside area of Derry, but were met with mass uprising by the local people. And then all hell broke loose on the streets of Belfast. 
The loyalist mobs burnt hundreds of Catholic families out of their homes as the RUC looked on. Soon, the British government sent in their army, deploying troops onto the streets to keep the peace between the warring, the warring communities. But as far as the nationalist community were concerned, there were an army of occupation sent over here to keep us rebellious Irish in our place, just the English had done to us centuries. Things escalated over the next two years, as the Brits harassed, arrested, beat, and shot down our people with impunity. In August 71, they they brought the internment without trial, lifting hundreds of Catholic men, most of them being completely innocent. And then, in October, three local men were shot down by soldiers they were all unarmed there was heavy rioting at the men's funerals and me and my friends getting beaten by the by baton welding troops this was the final straw for me the next day i went out and joined the ira so that's how i became involved in the armed struggle against the british imperialism judge me if you will but those were different times and I felt fully justified in fighting back. In any event, I am not intending to go into any details about my activities. Suffice to say, I was very active during 1972, which was the most violent year of conflict. Back then, my comrades and I truly believed we were at the cusp of victory, that one final push would drive the Brits into the sea. But of course, that didn't happen. The violence continued without respite. The events that I will describe have occurred in October of 1973. By that time, I was an experienced operative and had risen through the ranks of the movement. Unfortunately, I had also come to attention of the RUC's special branch and, by extension, the British military. They knew my name and that I was an active volunteer from the town. They didn't have enough evidence to convict me in court, but this hardly mattered, since I could be detained indefinitely under the Special Powers Act if they caught me. For this reason, I spent much of my time in Dundalk, a town just on the other side of the border and therefore outside of British jurisdiction. This didn't stop the Brits from harassing my family, unfortunately. None of my family members were involved in the IRA, But the Crown Forces couldn't get a hold of me, so they targeted my loved ones instead. My family home was raided on a regular basis, with floorboards being torn up, furniture ripped open, and family pictures and religious icons smashed. My brothers were beaten up, and lewd comments were directed toward my sisters. Things took a more sinister turn when two squatties left a funeral wreath at my parents' doorstep. The card attached had my name on it, along with a message reading, May he rest in pieces. Get it? Instead of peace. Pieces? <laughs> Funny. The death threat didn't bother me too much. Whenever I joined the IRA, I knew I would be targeted by British agents and their local loyalist proxies. Nevertheless, my mother was upset by the incident. It broke her heart. But I knew I couldn't go to see my family until this threat was been lifted. But the Brits' intimidation of my loved ones only increased my hatred for them and I vowed to redouble my efforts in target the Crown Forces. Ambushes and gun battles along the border were regular occurrences back then. 
However, in October 1973, the Brigade Command assigned me a special mission in my hometown, an operation which they wanted dealt with discreetly. Before I describe this forgotten incident, I think it's worth adding some context about what's happening at that time. As the conflict raged on, the north of Ireland was suddenly plagued by rumors of occult practices, witchcraft, and satanic rituals. As I recall, it began with a story in the press about an alleged animal sacrifice in the Copeland Islands, off the coast of Ards Peninsula. There were reports of clandestine gatherings on the island by persons unknown, and several slaughtered sheep were found at the site, supposedly having been sacrificed to the dark rituals of variety. The details were pretty vague, as tends to be in cases in the stories such as these. Some time later, a young boy was brutally murdered in Belfast. His body burnt and dumped in the River Lagan. This was a particularly tragic killing, which didn't appear to be linked to the conflict. Some believe there was a sexual motive to be the murder, but others thought that the boy had been sacrificed by the same shadowy cult responsible for the Copeland's incident. Well, these rumors continue to spread, with the reports of similar incidents and rituals all across the North, including the accounts of young people engaging in seances and attempts to contact those killed in the conflict. The IRA regarded these rumors with large degree of skepticism. We believe the stories were being deliberately spread by the British in an attempt to weaken the support base. After all, we had all been brought up in the Catholic faith, and many IRA volunteers were still devout, attending Mass regularly and reciting the Rosary. Many of us struggled to come to terms with the violent acts were committed in the name of freedom when we remember that the teaching of the Church and the Commandments particularly, Thou shalt not kill. It would certainly be the Brits interested in encouraging the idea that the violence was corrupting the youth and leading them down the path of darkness. They wanted our people to live in fear, to believe that there was something evil occurring behind locked doors, with demons and monsters lurking in the shadows, waiting for the opportunity to strike. At that time, I didn't believe a word of it. I considered myself a modern revolutionary, committed to a building of new society free from the superstitions and prejudice of the past. And so, when an incident occurred in my hometown of Nuri, I was keen to lead the IRA's investigation. I wanted to prove once and for all that this whole thing was a hoax. But what I saw and experienced over the few, those few days in October of 1973 changed my understanding of the world in ways that could never be previously imagined. It all started one autumn night. There's an old ruined castle on the hillside overlooking town. It's what remains of fort dating back to the Cromwell's time, as well known as local as Chucky Eddie's. The Brits spotted a fire up there one night and sent a patrol to investigate. What exactly the Brits found up there remains something of a mystery. Various different stories did the rounds at that time. What all accounts agree on is that there were a group of teenagers probably drunk or on drugs I slaughtered a goat, hanging its body from a credibly built stand. Willis, the teenager, sat in a circle and opened fire, reciting in an unknown chat in unison. A teenage girl was said to have drunk the cup of the goat's blood. Her brother had been killed during a riot the previous year, and she believed she could contact the spirits by conducting this bizarre ritual. Three teenagers were arrested at the scene. 
the blood drinking girl, and two boys. But the Brits released them without charge a couple days later. Accounts of the incident soon spread around the town and the story even appeared in the local press. There were, however, details which the Brits never made public. We heard through our sources how the four soldiers who discovered the gruesome scene were unable to report to duty the next day. They spoke of witnessing something evil and darkened hillside, and a natural entity which they could not describe. All four were taken off the frontline duty and sent to for psychological evaluation. One soldier later committed suicide. Bizarre and impulsive, bizarre and implausible as it was, the incident caused a lot of concern in the local community. Parents refused to allow their children out after dark, and people started questioning whether the violence had unleashed a terrible evil upon our people. News of the events soon reached the IRA Army Council and decided to launch their own investigation, which I was ordered to lead. The leadership believed that the entire incident had been concocted by the Brits in order to undermine our support base. Initially, I tend to agree with their assessment. Our orders were to pick up the three teenagers, detain them for questioning. I hope that the kids had been doped or were off their heads on drugs. If it turned out that they had knownly cooperated with the Brits, then they would become much more serious matter. Either way, we needed to get to the bottom of this and nip the rumors in the bud. I had two volunteers to assist me on this operation. There were there there was my best mate Mal. We'd gone to school together and joined the IRA at the same time. Sticking together through thick and thin, I loved and trusted Mal, like he was my own brother. And there was Seamus. Six foot two and built like a brick shithouse. Seamus was one of the toughest individuals I ever met and totally fearless. I once saw him take on an entire British squad with his bare fist. It took six of those bastards to eventually take him down and bundle him in the back of a APC. Mal and Seamus were good men and brave volunteers. They both deserved much better than what happened to them. If I knew then how I, it would turn out, I would have never had involved my two friends, but I'm getting ahead of myself now. The three of us drove to Nuri Town, avoiding any army patrols and roadblocks as we called on the teenagers and picked them up one by one. Surprisingly, we had a few compliance from families and no resistance whatsoever from the teenagers. For obvious reasons, no one wants to get picked up and integrated by the IRA. It usually doesn't end well for those people being questioned. But these kids didn't seem scared of in the slightest. In fact, they showed no emotion at all. And one of the three spoke a single word as we drove them to the safe house and on the edge of town and marched them inside. This was our first indication that something wasn't right. But things only got more disturbing from this point onward. Now, I'm not going to reveal the names of the three young people. The family still live in Uri, and I want to protect their privacy. And so, for the purpose of this account, I will refer to the boys as Patty and Mick, and the girl as Mary. Once we had secured the safe house, 
we placed Patty, Mick, and Mary in separate bedrooms and began to question them. We got straight to the point, bombarding them with questions about the incident up at the castle. What were they doing there? What did they tell the Brits? And so on and so on and so on. And what did they get from them? Nothing, not a single word. All three just stared blankly at us without a gain of emotion in their faces. It was like they weren't even there. The lights were on, but nobody was home. I've never seen anything like it. I'm sure if any of three blinked. This went on for several hours. Our line of questioning became increasingly aggressive, but it made no difference. At one point, Seamus lost his head and started to slap one of the lads around. He was frustrated by the lack of progress and wanted to get a rise out of the boy. Seamus hit the lad three or four times before we pulled him away. Now, as I said before, Seamus was a big lad and strong as an ox. When he hit you, you felt it. But not this boy. He barely reacted to the hard slaps and didn't show any signs of pain or distress. His cheek was bruised, his nose was bloody, but he didn't squeal or flinch. The wee bastard just kept on staring at us blankly, as if to say, is that the best you got? We decided to call it a night at that point. Clearly, these youngsters weren't, were tougher than they looked. We thought perhaps they actually were working for the Brits and received anti-interrogation training. In any event, we decided to let them stew overnight and start again in the morning. The three of us split up for the night. We didn't want to risk all of us being arrested together. If the Brits re- raided the house, Mal went home to his family while I traveled to another safe house outside of town. Seamus volunteered to stay at the house overnight and guard the prisoners. We were a bit worried about leaving him alone with them, given what happened earlier, but Seamus assured us that he'd calm down and would be fine. He was an experienced volunteer and we trusted him. I remember not sleeping well that night. I couldn't stop thinking of those creepy kids and their blank expressions as they glared into complete silence. I had a bad feeling about the whole situation. Something clearly wasn't right, but I couldn't quite put my finger on it. Still, nothing had prepared me for what happened next. I wasn't present for the events of the next morning. The Brits had set up roadblocks close to the safe house. I was staying, and so I needed to stay put until they left the vicinity. I learned what had happened after speaking to Mal that afternoon and could barely contain my shock and utter dismay. Mal had arrived at the safe house on the time on time that morning, prepared to relieve Seamus from his guard duties. He arrived to discover a disturbing scene. Seamus was upstairs, standing outside the locked door of the bedroom containing Mary, the girl who drank the goat's blood. Mal said he could hear the girl whispering softly through the door while Shaman stood and listened intently. Mal claimed he could not make out what she was saying, but he told me there was an unsettling tone to the whispering, sinister, almost inhuman. What was more surprising, however, was Shaman's behavior. Mal described that he looked on our friend's face pale white like he'd seen a ghost. Shaman appeared to be stuck in some sort of trance, and Mal had to physically shake him back to reality. Mal asked him what the hell was wrong, but Seamus couldn't answer. He, mer- he merely muttered something about having to go and probably did so, leaving perplexed Mal on his own. After briefly checking on the prisoner and finding no change, Mal sat downstairs and waited for me to arrive. 
About two hours later, two hours later, he received a frantic telephone call from Seamus' sister. Seamus was dead, and the RUC was in the process of recovering his body from the canal. We later spoke with several locals who'd been in the vicinity of the canal that morning and witnessed Seamus' suicide. They said he acted quickly before anyone could intervene, holding on to a concrete block and simply walking off the edge of the bank. Apparently, he sank straight to the bottom of the canal, making no effort of struggle or prevent himself from drowning. There was nothing no one could have done. Mal and I were, of course, devastated. We'd known Seamus in school, and he had been through hell and back with him over the previous few years. Neither of us had any inkling he was suicidal, and he'd shown no signs of depression up until that morning. Mal was convinced that the girl had said something to him that made him kill himself. I told him this was bullocks, and he needed to get a grip. Our friend's death was a tragedy, but we were already volunteers and still had a job to do. It took most of the day to deal with the aftermath of Seamus' tragic death. And so we were unable to recommence our integration with three teenagers. We brought them food and water, but they wouldn't touch it and didn't even react to our presence. That night, Mel and I both felt drained and exhausted. We decided that we would both stay in the safe house in case of any further incidents. Sleeping on the two sofas in the sitting room while the teenager remained locked in the upstairs. We settled for the, in for the night and managed to get a couple hours of shy, only to be abruptly awakened at 2 a.m. I woke up first, having been disturbed by soft whispering coming from upstairs. I froze when I realized it was the girl's voice. I couldn't hear the words she spoke, but they were deeply unsettling tone to the whispers, just as Mel described. I feared what would come next, but found myself frozen, unable to act. This went on for several moments before there was a sudden crash, followed by a sound of glass shattering. The din awoke Mel, and we both jumped and piled up the stairs to dream and find out what the hell is going on. We heard a ruckus emanating from the first bedroom, which held Mick, one of the teenage boys. We unlocked the door, barged in, only to discover a horrific scene. The bedroom window had been smashed from the inside, allowing the cold air into the room. Meanwhile, Mick lay on the floor, blood pouring from an open room in his neck, spraying all over the worn-out carpet. We quickly concluded that he used the shard of broken glass to cut his own throat. Mal and I ran to his side, holding down the thrashing body as we tried to disperse stop the bleeding. But it was already too late, and Mick bled to death with a matter of seconds. It was a terrible way to go, but I, but when I looked at Mick's eyes in his last moment, I saw no pain, no fear. In fact, he looked at peace. Mal and I were deeply disturbed by what we just witnessed, but we quickly regained some level of composure and went to check on the other prisoners. We opened the room to Patty's We opened the door to Patty's room next, discovering his lifeless body hanging from the ceiling. The boy had finished the news from an electrical wiring he pulled from the walls, using it to hang himself. We quickly cut him down, but once again we were too late. Patty was no longer breathing. Two side two suicides both occurring simultaneously. It made no sense, but the facts were undeniable. Mick and Patty were both dead. We checked on Mary next, expecting the worst when we unlocked the door and sheepishly entered her room. 
Nothing could have prepared Mal and I for what we discovered inside. Mary was standing in the middle of the darkened room, directly facing the doorway. It was as if she was waiting for us to come to her. She stood with her arms at her side and noticed the nails were bloody, with deep scratches visible on her arms and legs, as if she's been trying to claw at her something crawling underneath her skin. Her dark, straggly hair hung loose over her face, and beneath it lay a smile as wicked as anything I could ever witness, and my eyes wild with menace and hatred. I didn't think this was Mary anymore. The teenage girl had been transformed into something monstrous, earnestness drained and replaced with pure evil. I stood frozen to the spot, unable to avert my gaze, but Mal reacted angrily, pushing me aside and striking out at Mary, punching her hard across the face. You bloody bitch. You did this. You killed Seamus and the boys. Mary barely reacted to the punch. She merely left, lifted her head back up, looking Mal straight in the eye and grinned widened. And then she began to laugh, her mouth emitting a cruel, sadistic, and guttler guttural laughter that was painful to hear. Mal law completely lost the plot of at this stage. She screamed manically and attempted to drown out the wicked laughter. Shut up, shut up, shut the fuck up. She lashed out, attempting to strike the girl again. But this time she fought back, hurtling herself forward and physically biting Mal's hand, her teeth burrowing deep into the flesh. Mal screamed out in agony, prompting me to finally intervene. I darted forward, shoving Mary, or whatever she was, back into the corner of the room, willistically dragging the wounded Mal out of the doorway before slamming the door shut and locking it. We retreated downstairs, Mal clutching the hold of his bleeding hand, and all the time the good, god-awful laughter continued, mocking us as we fled in the defeat in the horrific scene. We went to the sympathetic local doctor to get Mal's hand stitched up and bandaged, after which we worked up the courage to return to the safe house, knowing we need to deal with the two dead teenage boys. I won't go into deals here, but Patty and Mick's bodies were removed from the house and ultimately returned to their respective families for proper burial. I, expect, I expected recriminations and anger from the parents, and so was surprised by the reactions both sets of parents were of course, of course devastated, but they seemed resigned to their son's tragic fate. I later spoke with Patty's mother and she told me that she knew they had lost their son already, that something evil had taken his soul the night at the castle. And so the death of his physical body came as something of relief. And at least now he was at peace. In any event, we still had the dilemma of what to do with Mary. She had calmed down somewhat after the earlier incident, and thankfully her sadistic mirth had stopped. Mal and I discussed our next move, and we agreed to do something which would have been unthinkable just a couple days before we called a priest. This decision wasn't taken lightly, apart from anything else. We were reluctant to bring an outsider into this already fucked up situation. Nevertheless, we knew what we... Nevertheless, we knew we were way out of our depth and had no rational explanation for the occurrences of the last past days. Also, we held out a slim hope that Mary could be saved, that whatever entity which had possessed her could be ex exorcised and her soul restored. 
the priest reached out to us. The priest we reached out to was sympathetic to our cause. And if rumors were to be believed, had dealt with similar incidents of witchcraft and demonic possession in the past. I won't name him here, but this priest was a devout, grizzed veteran of the church, a devout and fearless servant of God. He came out the next evening, equipped with a personalized exorcism kit he carried in a leather briefcase. He spoke with us at a, for a time, and we described the events of the previous few days. The father seemed conf- confident that he was as he ascended the staircase with his Bible, crucifix, and briefcase in his hand. We offered to accompany him into the room, but the priest insisted he would be safe, as God would be by his side. We didn't argue, assuming the old man knew the business and neither Mal nor I were in a hurry to step back inside the room. We remained downstairs and listened to the silence of the priest unlock the bedroom door and step inside. We were in speaking for several minutes, reciting the Lord's Prayer, reading verses of the scripture. After a while, the volume decreased. We could no longer hear the words. And then, Mary replied, we heard the same soft whispering as before, inaudible to us, but laced with sinister undertones. Immediately, I, free, feel, I feared the worst. Remembering what happened to Seamus and the boys, I stood up and prepared to intervene. But Mel held me back, telling me to wait and let the father do his holy work. I should have listened to my first instincts. A few tension-filled minutes later, all went silent. And then we heard the door open and a figure walk out, closing the door behind them. I shut up from my chair and saw the priest slowly walking down the staircase. It looked like all the bleed had drained from his face, and his hands shook ever so slightly as he gasped the hold of the banister. Father, are you all right? I called out in concern. He didn't answer, and he didn't even acknowledge my presence. Instead, he pushed past me, and Mel slowly made his way to the small kitchen. Mel and I followed, trying to vain to get his attention. He made his way to the kitchen drawer, removed a fork. Before either of us could react, he raised a fork and violently stabbed through his right eye. Jesus Christ! I screamed as I darted forward to intervene. But before I could, the priest had repeated the savage act of self-mutilation, jamming the fork into his left eye socket, blinding himself in the most horrific way possible. He didn't scream or cry out. He didn't even flinch. I've never seen anything like this before or since. Hold on, folks. I lost my place. The next few minutes passed by in pandemonium. As Mel and I frantically tried to stop the bleeding... But all the time we could hear the familiar sadistic laughter coming from upstairs. I never learned what exactly occurred between the priest and Mary during their time alone in the room. For many years, I did feel guilty about involving the priest and for what subsequently happened to him. He was retired from the priesthood after the ugly incident and was sent to live out the rest of his lives in a church-run institution located in a remote part of the country. 
Needless to say, the damage to his eyes was so severe that he was permanently, permanently blinded. It was some years later before I worked up the courage to visit him. After the pleasantries were out of the way, I asked him what happened that night, hoping to gain some insight into those horrific incidents. The, the old priest didn't answer me directly, but he said this, My son, don't you know it's carnal sin to take one's own life? If I was not a holy man, I would have taken, the, taken a knife from the drawer and cut my throat. But let me tell you, my son, if you hadn't seen what I saw that night, when I stared into the creature's eyes, you would have done the same. The horror she showed me were never meant for my mortal eyes. I shuddered at hearing those words and asked more, no more questions. In any event, on the night we managed to save the priest's life and got a neighbor to drive him to the hospital. And so once again, now and myself were left holding the bag. And we needed to make the decision. We decided in that moment that Mary was gone for good and whatever evil have taken over her body, we would not stop spreading pain, misery, and death. There was really only one option for, left, for us left to do. We needed to kill this monster. Mal and I vowed to carry out the killing that very night. We knew there would be repercussions for going against our orders, but we were no longer cared. The two of us went to a nearby arms dump where I recovered two loaded handguns. I took the thirty-eight special revolver and Mel armed himself with a Colt forty-five. I vividly remember creeping up the stairs of the safe house with our guns in our hands. We moved quietly, fearing the entity locked upstairs would realize our malicious intents. I recall how ner nervous Mel appeared, his bandaged hand shaking almost controllably. Looking back, I should have sent him home and dealt with the situation myself. Although given all Mel had been through, I doubt he would have obeyed such an order. His hand continued to shake as he reached the doorknob and turned it. At the same time, I kicked the door open and we both rushed forward, fully prepared to pump Mary's possessed body full of lead. But we were both frozen in shock at what we saw. Mary, or whatever she turned into, was hanging from the ceiling. Her fingernails had been had become sharp talons, and she'd used them to dig into the plaster, allowing her to hang upside down like a bat in a cave. Her neck was bent back a way that shouldn't have been physically possible. She glared down at us with inhuman eyes that were now entirely black, and she was still smiling, her mouth now filled with razor-sharp teeth like those of a crocodile. Jesus, I swore aloud. I was simultaneously awestruck and terrified. Never in my wildest nightmares had I imagined that such a monster could exist. We were both frozen in fear, and our hesitancy allowed the creature ample time to take the first strike. She shrieked loudly, pounced slashing out its claws and knocking Mal and I off our feet with immense force. The creature had escaped its prison, and it wasted no time to tearing down the staircase at incredible speed. I got back on my feet quickly, picking up my revolver and firing down the staircase, but I missed, and suddenly the monster had smashed through the front door and ran out onto the street. Mal pushed past me, sprinting down the stairs and out the door. Got to stop the bitch, he cried. 
I called out after my friend, telling him to stop, but he wouldn't listen. And besides, I knew he was right. We couldn't let this hideous creature escape into our community. So I ran after Mal, trying to keep up, but without much success. Mal had been a track runner in school, so he was considerably faster than me. We tore through the maze of back streets during the desperate chase. I lost sight of Mary, but could still hear her demonic laughter reverberating through the concrete jungle. Suddenly, we exited the estate and ran out onto open ground close to the town center. I could see Mel running in front of me, but then I spotted several figures approaching from the left-hand side. I turned my head and was horrified to see it was the British patrol soldiers, all armed with either rifles or submachine guns. The British, the Brit commander quickly spotted Mal, raising his SLR and screaming, Halt! Drop, you, drop your gun, you mick bastard! Mal stopped abruptly, turning his face to the British officer. I don't know what went through my friend's head in that final moment. Perhaps he was still pumped up with adrenaline after the chase, or maybe his heart was filled with reckless defiance. In any event, he showed no fear when he raised his handgun and aimed toward the enemies. But the Brits had dropped on him, firing a single round from his SLR, which tore through Mal's chest. The whole world seemed to slow down as I looked on impulse. The horror, watching as my lifelong friend fell dead in the middle of the street. I screamed out in grief, unwillingly revealing my presence to the enemy. A second soldier opened fire upon me, spraying bullets from his sterling submachine gun. Bullets hit the ground just inches from my feet, forcing me into action. I fired a couple of shots from my revolver, and I covered my retreat, and I frantically sprinted back to towards the housing estate. Somehow, I made it to cover under the hail of bullets. I escaped into the labyrinth of the back streets, eventually finding sanctuary in the house of the sympathizer. And all this time, between the sh- gunshots and shouting grits, I could hear the cruel, mocking laughter of Mary cutting through the cold air night. The next day, the Brits released a statement to the press saying the IRA had unsuccessfully attempted to ambush one of the patrols, which with one gunman killed at the scene, while the second escaped and remained at large. The IRA soon released their own statement, effectively saying the same thing. The cover, the, the cover story made no sense. We would never have sent two men armed with handguns to take on a larger, much better army enemy formation. But it was a convenient lie that suited both sides to maintain. Nobody wanted to admit the truth of what really happened. Mel received a full IRA funeral with all the trappings, including military parade through the town and a firing party over his gravesite. I couldn't meet the eyes of his family during the proceedings. The guilt I carried was too much. And what about Mary? Well, she's still officially listed a missing person to this day. It's widely believed that the IRA executed her and her body at a secret location. But that isn't what happened. Over the years, I've heard rumors and whispers stories of a young girl with black eyes who would sporadically pop up in small villages in isolated forms along the border, terrorizing the local population. It was, th- it was said that she would appear on your doorstep in the dead of night, a cruel laughter filling the air. Those who saw her were said to be cursed. 
and bad fortune coming to their families. Also, there were said to be spats of suicides in areas where sightings were reported. As for me, a tough debriefing from the IRA's internal security unit, I was allowed to return active service. I tried to put the ugly incident behind me, but could not, and I was never committed to the cause after that point. I got sloppy, and eventually the Brits caught up with me, arresting me with a car full of explosives and ammunition during the spring of 75. I was sentenced to 10 years for membership of, of an illegal organization and intent to endanger life. I did my time in Long Cash, going on the blanket with my fellow Republican prisoners in an attempt to gain political status. I saw 10 of my comrades die on hunger strike during the standoff with Thatcher's government. I re got released in the mid-1980s. The conflict was still going on, but the IRA's leadership was satisfied that I'd done my bit for the cause, so I was allowed to retire into relative obscurity. I saw my release as a second chance of life, one I intended to grasp with both hands. I met a girl, fell in love, marrying her, starting a family. Work was hard to come by by given my status of ex-prisoner, but I got in touch with an old building jobs and driving taxi. A few years later, the IRA and Loyal's parliamentaries declared ceasefires and entered into peace talks. I supported the Good Friday Agreement when it was signed. It didn't deliver what I th fought for and my comrades had died for, not even close. Nevertheless, times have moved on. I didn't want my children growing up in the violence I've seen. They deserve so much better. Well, like I said, I knew I needed to tell the truth of what happened back in 73 if only for the sake of the families. But there's another reason too, namely what happened to me six months ago. I was out shopping in the supermarket in town, picking up some sweets for my Korean kids. I always like to spoil them when they come to visit. It was quiet at the time, so I had an aisle to myself, or so I thought. I remember seeing a figure out of the corner of my eye. Immediately I felt a cold chill running up my spine and all the hairs on my stood on end. slowly turned my head and looked down the aisle and dread came over came me it was her mary in her demonic form with dark black eyes ghostly white skin she hadn't aged in 45 years i stood frozen in fear as a helpless as a deer caught in headlights and then she smiled the same hideous grin from all those years ago bringing back a flood of horrific memories i knew what was coming next laugh the cruel, mocking, sadistic, and every bit horrifying as those years ago. Suddenly, I felt tightness in my chest, a shooting pain in my arm. I couldn't breathe and stand on my two feet. I found myself falling as the world went black. I could still hear her hateful mirth as I drifted out of a consciousness. Eventually, I suffered a major heart attack but survived. I'm currently on the waiting list for bypass surgery. I don't know whether I'll be around for much longer. And so, I'm telling you my story as I still can. The monster's still out there. It feeds on misery, pain, and suffering. And given the way the world is going, it's only going to get stronger. I'm too old and too weak to continue the fight. And so, someone else needs to take up the battle. We need to stop this evil before it's too late written by Finn McCool.
Very interesting. I don't know if it's real or not. It's a very interesting read, if I say so myself. What do you guys think? Totally interesting. Now, out of 46 votes, it got a 9.02 out of a 10. So, people really like this one. So, um, go check out Mr. McCool. Um, you can check him out on Facebook. Um, hold on, let me get his Facebook for you guys. It's it's Mark Lynch AH. Um, so check him out. See what you see what you think, and hopefully you enjoy the story. Don't forget to like, share, and subscribe. Um, if you have any stories, any ideas go ahead and shoot them all the info will be linked below and um happy monday stay safe and i'll see you all later